Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner of Future Technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future Technologies, poised to transform our lives for better or worse, are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used, or just around the corner, from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. This is Richard Jacobs with Future Tech Podcast. Almost here, around the corner, future technology. Uh, today, I'm speaking to Piper Merriam. Uh, he works with Consensus. Uh, Piper, do you want to give us, um, you know, a rundown on the type of projects you're involved in because they seem to be pretty diverse? Sure. Um, I've had the the uh, luck or benefit or whatever you want to call it of being able to, to pursue my own interests in this space for pretty much the entire last year and a half. So the work I've done is pretty diverse. Um, one of the things that's more well known potentially among the developer community is the Ethereum alarm clock project um, designed to uh, fill a gap in the Ethereum virtual machine, allowing people to uh, schedule for co- schedule code to be executed at a later time, which is something you can't do um, natively in the EVM. Um, outside of that, um, I, main it, I maintain a lot of the Python tooling in the Ethereum ecosystem. Um, I kicked off um, a identity project at DevCon 2 this year, uh, the DevCon 2 token system, which is a civil resistance token that we'll see what people do with. Um, I think that about right. Yeah, let's let's um let's talk about that first. The DefCon, you know, project's probably the juiciest one. You know, sure. you know, because of the hackers' world there. But uh, yeah, tell me about um, yeah about that. What what's involved uh, sorry, with that project? Uh, uh, DevCon, not DefCon. They often get they sound very similar. Uh, DevCon, the okay. Ethereum conference that was in Shanghai this year. Um, okay. DevCon is terrifying to me, and I wouldn't want to go because um, everything <laughs> that I own would have to get burned after that, I think. Uh, okay. I don't know. I'm, uh, I joke there. Um, so at, at DevCon this year, the Ethereum conference in Shanghai, um, I got the – I had an idea to sort of burrow into my brain and not let go. Um, so um, the identity problem is a sort of – big one in the decentralized space, um, you know, how do you, uh, you know, if you want to set up like a voting system, how do you make sure that everybody only gets one vote, right? Because it's mm. really trivial to to spin up a thousand accounts and give a thousand votes. Um, right. So uh, that attack, that concept of like one person running, you know, a thousand different accounts is called a uh, civil attack. Um, and so systems that are resistant against that are sometimes referred to as civil resistance. Um, so did, you say um, here, uh, did you say it's a civil attack, like that movie with the girl that has 17 personalities? Uh, I think that the name Sybil is actually from the researcher who coined this um, attack vector. Um, How do you uh, spell it? I'm, S-Y-B-I-L. Um, yeah, actually, I would take a look at that if I were you, by the way, because there was a movie called <laughs> called Sybil, and this poor girl I, had 17 personalities, and I think, I bet you that's where it came from, actually. Sybil yeah, I, I think you're right. I'm, I'm looking at the Wikipedia article here, and it appears that that, that might be the origin of the name. <laughs> um, nonetheless, it, in in my head, it's just a word that means this technical thing. Um, and so at, at DevCon this year, I set up a system to essentially issue um, one token to anybody who wanted one who's at the conference. Um, I was the gatekeeper for this, so there was a level of trust that I wasn't, you know, manipulating the system and things like that. But okay. at the end of the conference, uh, that um, contract, that smart contract on the Ethereum blockchain uh, closed. And so now there are 231 of these that got issued. Um, and there will never be any more that get issued. So if somebody wanted to protect their system um, from 
many people being able to, um, uh, for the next sort of civil attack, they could use this token as an authentication mechanism. And it's like a really small, isolated little experiment in this space to see what can be done with it. So um, currently let's, really... Um, let's break it down a little bit. So you issued 231 people a token. So a token is what? Is that yep. like a um, limited access to uh, to a, a network, or what is a token? Um, well, so it's really just sort of, you know, bits in a database in the Ethereum blockchain. Um, so the term, t okay, so a lot of things um, use tokens in the Ethereum ecosystem right now. Um, there's a lot of them that sort of represent shares or like the initial coin offering for companies. So okay. uh, Digix has the DGD token and uh, Maker, who's working on uh, the stable currency, the DAI, has the MKR token. Um, these are sort of, you can think of them as shares in a company, um, fungible assets, uh, things that can be traded around. Um, they're really just entries in a database. They've got an owner um, and an account balance. Um, and so in this system that I made, um, essentially what your token is is just an account balance of one token that's assigned to you. And so you're like either you own a token or you don't, and they're all assigned okay. to some uh, Ethereum address. Right. Okay, so for a voting application, let's say, you know, the United States wanted to do a, a token system for voting for 2020. So I don't know if I have this right, but they would, um, you'd prove your identity, they would issue you a unique token that is verifiable, what, cryptographically? And that would cut down on voter fraud because only one person could use a token, or, or how, does, how would it work? Uh, it's a little mixed up there. Um, so okay. uh, token is even possibly the wrong word. It's just the word that I started with and um, haven't renamed things and probably can't at this point. Um, so you could really think about it as like an identity or a user account or something like that. Um, essentially, by you either have one of these or you don't, and by having one, you're part of the system, and by not, you, you're not part of the system. So mm. if somebody wanted to use this for voting, what they would do is just restrict access to voting only to accounts who own the um, For something like, you know, U.S. government scale, um, what you're really talking about there is having the government actually issue digital identities, and those digital identities would sort of be, you can think of them as tokens, I guess, uh, an identity okay. token. Gotcha. I understand why the word is a little bit confusing, but okay. It's like, it's like a unit of membership, it's a token, it's many other things. It's, okay, I see what you mean. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean it, the 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 term token is is way overloaded in this context. You know, in most of in most of these situations, you can own a thousand tokens, right? Because most things like um, Maker, Digix, you know, you, you're allowed to own more than one of them. Is the idea? Um, in this system that I made, you're actually only ever allowed to own one, because the idea is right. that it's one per person. Why would uh, Maker and Digix issue tokens to people? What's the the whole point of doing that? Or what are some of the reasons why why a company would do that? Um, so there's some cool write-ups on this um, by a handful of people, and I'm going to fail to mention who they are. I think one of them is one of the CEOs or CTOs or C-somethings of Coinbase. Um, like the, the age of the tokenized ecosystem or um, the golden age of, of open protocols. Um, so the idea is that we are potentially, uh, you know, predicting the future is inherently uh, error prone, but mm. we want to get into that business. We are potentially entering um, a slightly new age of the internet where we're going to see a lot more open protocols be developed. Um, open protocols are things like SMTP, which is how email gets sent around. Um, and it turns out that a 
ton of the, you know, there's a whole bunch of open protocols out there, and most of them were invented quite a while ago. Um, there aren't a lot of new open protocols that get developed, or really they get developed and heavily adopted, um, because the business model is sort of broken there. Um, it's harder to develop a protocol as an open protocol, because you have to, because then you're kind of locked in to this level of backwards compatibility that you don't have to support if you just make it a closed private protocol. So, um, one of the places this has been talked about is Twitter, is that Twitter could have been developed as an open protocol. And in that case, then it would have been this open network that anybody could participate in that does what right. Twitter does, but it's done as like this open, federated platform. Um, so that in a sense, Twitter was founded, because why would they do that? Because it, it one, it takes a bunch of control out of their hands, um, and two, it just adds overhead to their development when they're really trying to develop that thing as a product. Um, a bunch of these write-ups that I was talking about, about you know the age of the tokenized ecosystem, are talking about that the situation has changed somewhat now with all of these kind of open blockchains. The idea is that you develop a protocol and you sell a uh, token that sort of runs the protocol. So for Twitter, you know, they might be like Twit tokens or something like that. And okay. um, for, and forgive this like back of the napkin making up how Twitter would work as an open protocol. But the idea is that you would use these to do things like tweet, you know, publish tweets and, you know, subscribe to people and reply and all those things. So this token that gets okay. sold is sort of what runs the network. It's like the internal currency for the network. Um, so that's why a bunch okay. of these platforms are creating these token systems. Now, there's a number of them that have created token systems that don't really have any clear value. Um, and those sort of map more onto like a crowdfunding platform rather than an actual um, token that you can use for things. Um, so it's sort of this, a token system is this sort of weird blend between kind of like stock sometimes and it's kind of like a currency sometimes and it's kind of like a crowd fund where you don't get anything for it sometimes so so a company can say you know hey if um if you buy x amount of tokens it'll help us fund this new project for instance could they do they do uh, like internal um, crowdfunding that way? Uh, I, I don't really like that phrasing because it, it um, that really only works if people just want to give you money to make the thing. Um, a lot of people buy these tokens as an investment. Um, the idea is that, you know, they do this ICO, which is an initial coin offering. You know, they do some crowd sale for it and they sell, you know, 8 million tokens or something like that. Um, right. They, they hold back, you know, maybe like 10 or 20% of the tokens as their own tokens, and they sell that other, you know, percentage. Um, right. And the idea is that all those people who buy them, what they're actually doing is speculating future value of the company, or, you know, maybe more indirectly on the uh, future value of the token itself. Um, so, um, so, yeah, people buy into them because they're planning on making money off of them normally or potentially right. okay. um, for something like uh, the Golem um, project that's going on. Um, I tokens are actually used to in the network. So if you are planning on building something on top of that new thing, then you might buy a bunch of these tokens in the crowd sale because you're probably going to be cheaper there. And that way, when you launch your product, you already have them to, you know, fund your application um, interacting with that network. Hmm. Okay. So how about um, Ethereum? What's, what does Ethereum's token let you do? You know, what do Ethereum's let you do? What's their model? Cool. Uh, so, so Ether is the base uh, token um, on the Ethereum blockchain. Um, and the thing that you, so Ether is worth money, and that's just people's perception of value and things like that. So you can, you know, trade it just sort of as a uh, coin, just like you would Bitcoin or 
Zcash or Monero or, or any of those. Um, but the actual use of it is paying for gas. Um, and gas is the unit that you use to pay for computation on the Ethereum virtual machine. So every time you send a transaction, um, you have to pay for the gas. Uh, you can kind of think of these as transaction fees. And the idea is that um, the more computation that transaction does, uh, the more gas it costs. Um, so the um, so you buy gas with ether. Um, right. So why why not just charge people regular money for why, fiat currency? Why why have a token? What's the point? Well, um, it's sort of. I mean, it'd be great if we could charge people regular money. Um, but what that would sort of require is for regular money to uh, be both permissionless and um, and it's not exactly either of those. Um, cash is permissionless. You can just have cash and carry it around and pay people with it. Um, and money is digital in many ways because we've all got you know, money in our bank account. That is an actual cash sitting in a vault somewhere. That's, you know, records in some bank's database. Um, but the digital version of that money is not permissionless. If you want to actually make uh, digital payments, you have to go through somebody like MasterCard or make a relationship with a bank or things like that. And all of those are permissioned. So those don't really work for blockchains for the most part, at least public blockchains, because, um, well, those companies are not likely to just open their doors and say, yeah, sure, anybody can now make payments or anybody can move money around that wants to. Um, so that's why I don't know, I'm probably getting outside of my expertise here, but um, if there were, U yeah, if there were U.S. dollars easily available as a crypto asset, then yes, we could use those. Um, but since there aren't, um, most blockchains implement their own base currency. Mm, okay, gotcha. So why, in your opinion, does Ethereum have the value it has and do you think, you know, the, the Ether coin or token is going to go up or down and why why would it sure um i try not to speculate on price um you know i, I kind of have my own personal opinions about it but um i there's a lot more to this than than the like financial uh end game of just you know dumping some money into this token and then selling it later when it's worth more um, right. The idea behind Ether is that it's the, the currency that fuels the Ethereum virtual machine. Um, and the reason that I am in this space and working on all of this stuff is a certain level of belief in the future value of this technology. Um, well, you could say if, if, if someone believes that Ethereum's technology is going to get more and more valuable and widespread over time, then they may also believe that, hence, the token will get more valuable over time. Is that a reasonable assumption? That, um, yeah, that is one line of thinking. Um, I wouldn't, you know, put all your chips into that bucket because just right. because the network gets more use over time, um, there are there are versions of the future where even drastically increased use doesn't actually increase the uh, overall value of the token itself um, because of how the, the Ethereum virtual machine does gas cost computations. You know, the gas cost might adjust um, with that increased usage to end up having that currency not that uh, the same supply of the currency, um, oh, I'm losing my words here. Uh, how do I say what I'm trying to say here? Let me try that again. Um, okay. So there is, you know, one potential future is that uh, network usage goes up and so demand for Ether goes up and so the price of Ether goes up. Um, another possible way to look at that is that demand goes up and the uh, gas price mechanism within the network 
automatically adjusts itself downwards because the network has capacity for all of that additional usage maybe. Um, and so the demand doesn't actually go up at all. So um, I, I don't really give people advice about investing. Um, so I would say if you want to uh, own or hold some ether, then you should go do your own research. Yeah, no, I mean, well, specifically disclaim, I'm not asking you for investment advice. I'm I'm asking you sure. why the price could go up and why the price could go down. Like, what are some possible scenarios under, like you gave one, you know, oh, network usage sure. goes up a lot and the price goes up. Uh, other cases would be right. it goes down. So, yeah, I just want to let listeners, everyone know, we're not offering any advice. We're just, <laughs> we're throwing around ideas on why this, this has a price and why the price could change either way. Right. Uh, one way to possibly look at the value of Ether um, or the Ethereum network is the sort of the total value of all of the products and platforms and markets and things that are actually built um, on top of Ethereum. Now, it's mm. not, that's not like a perfect estimation by any means because because there's a whole lot of hand-waving there, but the general idea there is that the Ethereum network itself is worth value to you know, society, roughly the sum of the value of all of the things that are built on top of it. Right, it makes sense. So, yeah, let's take a little bit of a detour now that we talked about tokens and, and value and all that. Um, there's something called the Ethereum alarm clock. Can you talk briefly about what that is and what it does? Yeah, uh, that's one of the projects that I did um, sort of right at the onset of, my, of uh, diving into working on Ethereum-related stuff. Um, so Ethereum implements a Turing-complete virtual machine as its blockchain. Um, that means that you can write arbitrarily complex programs and run them on this like, public network. Um, and know that the computation that it was supposed to do is the computation that it actually did. Um, this is really cool, um, but it does have some inherent limitations. Um, uh, so the Ethereum alarm clock allows you to schedule code to run at some time later in the future. Um, you hmm. can kind of map this onto the concept of prawn um, if you're used to a Unix environment. Um, or really just any um, delayed execution of code. Um, so the Ethereum alarm clock sets up a marketplace where people who want something run later can sort of put some money up up front and say, hey, if anybody will execute this for me sometime later, you'll get this bounty, this reward. Um, the goal is for it, it's, it's not something that's designed to be really user-facing. Um, it's really a low-level ecosystem um, tool um, targeted at developers, uh, targeted at people who are building applications on this platform um, who have some need for that sort of delayed code execution. Okay, so the alarm clock essentially, like you said, is it lets applications run automatically at some point in the future. Right. And I potentially made a, a poor word choice by calling it the alarm clock because there's been a whole bunch of confusion that it's an actual alarm clock that you can use to wake yourself up, which is not at all what it does. <laughs> That's what I thought too, yeah. That's okay. So how does the um, the alarm clock, quote-unquote, get paid? Does it get paid in Ether? Or how do people pay for this um, ability? Yeah, so you essentially deposit the cost of executing that code um, up front, and then the person who is actually performing the execution knows that that money is sitting there, sort of in escrow is one way to think about it, um, and that if they perform the execution as requested, then they will both get paid back for the gas costs and get paid that extra uh, bounty for for executing um, the transaction as requested. So it's it's a, the bounty a pay up front is... model. So okay, whatever I got the, the pay up front part. Person, yeah, it's whatever the person um, who scheduled it 
specified. So, you know, I might say, I'll pay you a dollar if you'll execute this at some time later. Um, or somebody who has something really important that they want executed might say, I'll pay you $10. Um, but it's, it's just a, it's a, it's just ether alongside the other ether that's sitting there in escrow that'll get paid to you um, if you perform the execution as requested. Gotcha. Okay. Any other um, codings that you've made, you know, that provide functionality like like the alarm clock? What else have you worked on? Um, I I I spent a little bit of time on a thing called the Ethereum computation market. Um, it the the idea behind it is that they're you know uh, so executing code on the Ethereum virtual machine is is quite expensive. Um, the uh, and so doing computationally expensive things on the Ethereum virtual machine is sort of infeasible. So if you wanted to say hash a password using Scrypt, you're looking at you know, paying potentially multiple dollars in transactions to hash a single password. Um, so the idea behind the computation market is that if you can verify the results on chain, then you don't actually have to. So what you can do is you can set up a, a marketplace where people on one side say, I would like you to please do this computation. And the people on the other side perform that computation somewhere outside of the blockchain and then report the results in alongside of, along, uh, along with a, a, a hefty security deposit. And what that security deposit is there for is so that if they, were, if, they, if they give back an answer that's wrong, somebody else can come along and say, no, that's wrong, and I'm going to challenge that answer. Um, at that point, the computation is run on chain, and whichever one of those parties provided the correct answer gets kind of like that whole bounty of, of security deposits. So the idea is okay. that that if you lie, if you lie, if you if you provide an answer that's wrong, um, it's easy to prove that you did something wrong, and so. So the economic incentives for lying just aren't there. Um, the moment right. that anybody lies, reports a bad answer, it's very easy to punish them because you can verify it on chain. So the idea is if you can verify it, you don't have to. Well, it's not only reputation, it's loss of the uh, security deposit, right? Well, right. In fact, in fact, there's kind of no reputation going on in these systems because they are completely open, um, open systems that anybody can participate in. So, yeah. um, so really, there's no reputation going on here at all. It's like purely, um, here's my security deposit, and here's the answer, and you have no idea, you know, who reported it. But if they lie, you can prove it. Gotcha. Okay, right, that makes sense. Is that a project that you're going to continue to move forward with, or have you shelved it? Or where is um, that? Uh, probably not. It's it's currently gathering dust on the shelf. Um, I hope it I hope it acts as a stepping stone for other people who are working in this area. Um, hmm. But it it was a it was a cool project to do, and I learned a lot making it. Um, but picking it back up just hasn't ended up being very high priority on my priority list. Right. So what's your main focus right now? What are you most excited about that you're working on? Um, right now, I am sort of focused on two or three main things, depending on how you look at them. Um, I'm working with Tim Coulter, who is the primary author behind the Truffle development framework. Um, and a number of other um, framework developers to establish uh, what we're referring to as the Ethereum smart contract packaging standards. So it's essentially how you package up a set of smart contracts so that somebody else can install them locally. Um, mm. uh, there is no packaging standard right now, so code reuse is very uh, copy-paste if you want to do code reuse which is really not how you want to be doing development. Um, so we're focused on 
on getting that standard um, figured out and then implementing uh, the actual package manager side of it in our respective tools. Um, so I maintain a development framework called Populous, which is a Python-based one for Ethereum smart contract development. Um, okay. So a lot of my work is also maintaining that and continuing development of, of that framework. And as we talked about earlier, um, I am still enjoying expanding and experimenting with the DEFCON 2 token system. Um, I have some some plans for that that I've been working on in, in little sprints here and there. Um, currently, I mean, we'll, you know, I guess we'll get into smart contracts now, which is another thing that's probably named properly, improperly. <laughs> Seems to be rampant in this world. <laughs> um, just for listeners, so smart contract. It's hard. It's hard. Yeah. So, uh, how would you do, first of all? How would you define a smart contract? Isn't it just a, a set of instructions that, if A happens, then do B, then C, or what is it? Um, in the Ethereum world, a smart contract is a piece of code. So it is literally just a um, a a piece of code that runs on the Ethereum um, virtual machine. Um, the I think the reason I don't know I think I think I'm going to be guessing or stabbing wildly in the dark here, but the idea behind the word contract is that uh, Ethereum provides provably correct computation. So it's like, um, you know, when you run code on your own machine, there's no guarantee that it actually runs as intended. Um, you could have, you know, malicious code running on your machine that um, changes things or um, uh, any number of ways the code can run not as intended on, on any number of machines. But when code runs on the Ethereum virtual machine, it's generally guaranteed with like some really strong mathematical guarantees to run exactly as programmed. Um, and so I think that's that's potentially where this contract came from there. But um, but I'm guessing, so I'm probably wrong. Um, but the idea is that, that these smart contracts are uh, pieces of code that have been pushed into the Ethereum virtual machine that then can be executed to do whatever they were programmed to do. And they have those nice guarantees of running as programmed. Okay. Um, so they have pieces of code. There's a guarantee they'll actually run. What are the other benefits? because they're tied to the uh, Ethereum blockchain? Um, so they are, so there are these little units of, of logic or code engine. Um, and the nice part about them is that they are effectively immutable, which means that once you push that piece of code out there, um, nobody can really change it or um, modify it to do something other than what it was originally programmed to do. Um, there are some interesting consequences and benefits that come from this. Um, some of the consequences that you immediately see are, what if there's a bug, right? Like if you push the code and it's mutable and you find a bug a week later, you can't change it. That bug is forever encoded in there. So there's some um, unfortunate pieces um, that can come up. Um, the DAO fiasco uh, was one example of that. A uh, piece of code with uh, tons of money dumped into it, and it turned out it had some pretty serious bugs, and nobody was able to change those other than with the hard fork. Um, so um, downsides are there, but there's some really strong upsides too. Since it can never change, since um, since that code, whatever it was programmed to do, it will always keep doing that, it means that you can use it as a foundation for whatever you are doing and know with really strong certainty that, that it's not going to break sometime randomly in the future. 
that some author is not going to, you know, push an update to their library that has some backwards incompatibilities in it, and then all of a sudden your thing, which depends on it, starts breaking. Um, and that's one of the big, big benefits that I see with some of this technology. Um, I'll try to map it to like the normal web world. Um, right now, if you are building a new business and you need to interact with the Twitter API as like a fundamental part of your business, then okay. you are exposing yourself to a large amount of risk because Twitter can change their API however they want. Um, right. There's nothing that keeps Twitter from preserving their API to do what it does today to do the same thing tomorrow. They could make fundamental changes that um, that break your business or your application tomorrow. That okay. is um, when you are interacting with a with an API that acts by the Ethereum virtual machine, you can have guarantees that that API is not going to change tomorrow, nor is it going to change a week from now or a year from now, that, that it's going to stay the same roughly forever if that's the way that it was programmed. But you can, you can have these, these really strong guarantees that the thing that you're building your business on is a really strong foundation. Well, why wouldn't, uh, I mean, APIs change, I would think, because they need to. So wouldn't Ethereum sure. be like hobbling is, itself by saying it's not going to change? Well, so there are ways to sort of get the best of both worlds here. Um, the way that a lot of people do this in the Ethereum world is that they put, um, they put a kind of abstraction layer in front of their API. So rather than interacting with that um, with that piece of code directly, um, they interact it through sort of a proxy that that sort of directs you to the newest version, essentially. So every time that there's an update to the API where they want to add something or fix something, um, typically you deploy a whole new version of the API. And what that does is the old one will likely still keep working for at least the foreseeable future. So rather than just having the API suddenly shift out from under you and change, even there's a new version and you can get your application updated to work on the new version, but that old version is going to sit around and keep working. So you can kind of have a best of both worlds situation um, there. But a lot of this stuff is, is cutting edge, experimental, and the um, you know developer best, best practices and the you know how to architect these sort of applications are they're all being invented right now. Um, everything you know, uh, there's tons of experimentation going on on how do we actually build applications under this new paradigm, and uh, you know new things are learned daily um, about good ideas and bad ideas and, and things that might yeah. be good ideas. Well, all right, so get, getting back to the smart contracts or the code, so if the code is unchangeable, is there any provision? What if, um, you know, someone creates a smart contract, you know, a piece of code and wants to run it, but then they realize, oh, no, doing so would cause them harm, you know, financially or otherwise. Can they stop it? What can they, there's got to be some provision to stop things, I would think, right? Yeah, and I mean, you know, building in a kill switch for, for situations like that is, is becoming more common and standard. Um, but really what we're talking about here is 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 cutting-edge stuff that people are still experimenting with. Um, mm. There are not established, you know, perfect solutions for all of these things. And over time, those will start to get solidified, but until then, it's still very much the Wild West in this area. Um, we're still very much in a world where you might accidentally lock up hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of funds because of a small software bug, and that sucks, but that's kind of the world we live in right now. Um, so, uh, still very much the Wild West um, in the smart contract land. Okay. Any feeling on when 
this will mature to a point where it's uh, you know it's more robust and you don't have these these problems with people losing control of the code, losing tons of money. I mean, it's not going to happen overnight or be something that you know just shows up one day. Um, this is going to be something that's ongoing. I mean, it's we're it's already better than it was a year ago, and a year from now, I'm sure it's going to be even better then. Um, some of these things are getting tackled at the um, language and compiler level. So Solidity is kind of the primary programming language that people write Ethereum smart contracts in. Um, and Solidity itself has made a lot of changes recently to increase um, safety in, in these areas. Um, similarly, um, we're working in a technology that's very, that benefits a lot from network effect, and we're really early in that phase. So mm. as, as the, you know, snowball gathers momentum or whatever metaphor you want to use, there's going to be more people focusing their effort into this. And as more things go wrong and more errors are found, there's going to be more focus on those areas to say, okay, cool. How can we, how can we make this mistake um, not just harder to make, but so that you can't make it? How can we eliminate the possibility of these mistakes? Gotcha. Okay. Any um yeah. So what what do you guess may happen in the next year or two uh, with Ethereum and with your work? Anything that uh, you think sure. is, uh, you know, people should be aware of that's exciting? Yeah. Um. I think one of the biggest um deficits right now, or maybe barriers to entry, um. There's really two that um one of them is is management of your private key. Um, so everything in blockchain land is generally handled by a public private key pair. And if you have the private key, then you have full access to that account. Um, you know, normal people, when they, you know, have bank accounts and things like that, are, you know, the status quo is that if somebody gets into your bank account, then your bank fixes it and puts all your money back in there. Um, you know, status quo is if your credit card gets compromised, then your credit card company refunds you all of the, you know, fraudulent charges and things go back to normal. Um, in blockchain land, if somebody gets your private key and transfers all of your money away, that's it. That, there's, there's, no, there's no rollback functionality. There's no uh, reverting that transaction. Um, so that sort of... Um, low-level interface is probably not what consumers end up working with. Um, and in general, just private key management is hard. Um, there's good solutions like hardware, um, hardware wallets or HSMs, um, which basically turn the digital security problem into a physical security problem. So rather than, you know, having malware or something malicious that then steals your private key and now it's now it's gone and they can use it however they want. Um, what a hardware wallet does is it sort of locks that private key away um, behind a piece of hardware that has no interface for getting at that private key. And the idea there is that while a malicious piece of software on your computer might be able to misuse your private key while that thing's plugged into your machine, as soon as you take it away, they can no longer make any use of it. So it turns digital security into physical security, and mankind has way more experience with physical security than we do digital. So it's kind of one of the, the things that I see fixing this problem, but that's going to mean that we need... Uh, hardware security modules in all of our phones that are compatible with this sort of stuff. So um, that's one piece. And then fungibility. So the ability for people to easily move their money in and out of this system. Um, blockchains do payments really well um, because they're, you know, permissionless ledgers and anybody can pay anybody, but you can really only pay people using the currency of the network or in Ethereum's case using, you know, uh, token systems or things like that as well. 
Um, but the barriers to, you know, taking your dollars that are either in your hand or, you know, somewhere in your bank account and actually getting them into the system are relatively high right now. Um, and until those barriers get a lot lower, um, um, it's going to be a lot harder for at least consumer level adoption of this uh, technology. Yeah, so for instance, if I want to uh, buy Bitcoin or buy Ether, I have to go to, um, I have to get a wallet, I have to go to a, an exchange or some other mechanism, I have to verify my identity, I have to do a whole bunch of things just to buy some some of these cryptocurrencies. Right. Um, and and that, that, that level of hurdle jumping is higher than most consumers will go through. So. Yeah, you have to have a personal interest in it. Right. So what do you think is going to happen that will lower the barrier? What, you know, how well, could that happen? Do you have any speculation on it? Um, so I, I think that there's a lot of different routes to, the, um, to that kind of end game. Um, there's a lot of interest in, I mean, fintech, um, financial tech is very interested in what blockchain-based technology can do for their business. Um, there's the R3 group, which is a consortium of banks that are experimenting with connecting their backends using, I think, a private Ethereum blockchain, but either way, it's a, it's a private permission to blockchain. Um, and eventually, what we're likely to see is our, our, either a bank itself or um, a company that's formed a good relationship with a bank. Um, that enables very low friction transfer of your money into a digital asset. Um, consumers likely don't won't need to know or care that that's actually what they're doing. But if we have that low friction um, low friction pathway in and out of the system, whether that be a bank that decides to put their um, to allow their users to convert their money into digital assets or um, something like Venmo that, but Venmo for blockchain that allows, you know, very easy hooking up your bank account details and transferring money in, um, right. then I believe we're going to start to see that network effect piece take off, which is, um, which then lets more and more people move their money in and out of the system. Um, which hopefully increases adoption. Um, one of the other barriers to entry is stable store of value. Um, right now, the price of crypto assets tends to fluctuate um, quite a bit in some cases. And either way, even the small fluctuations are not likely to be tolerated by consumers. Um, people are used to balance being worth the same today as it was to, as it was yesterday. Um, and so right now, if you want to keep your money in crypto assets, you sort of have to accept the volatility as well. Um, right. So there's a bunch of projects that are trying to, to create stable coin um, type systems. We'll see if any of those go anywhere. And even if they don't, there's a number of people who are just issuing what are effectively IOUs. Um, Tether is one of those. They issue um, what are effectively IOUs for U.S. dollars, so they're worth one U.S. dollar. Um, and I think there's another one called uh, Distributed Capital, um, who's who is also issuing uh, digital versions of a lot of fiat currency. So you can get uh, digital U.S. dollars or digital euros. Um, but the overhead is still kind of high in getting your money into and out of those systems. So, Right. And there's also the risk that if that particular institution fails, that they wouldn't be able to honor their IOUs. Right. We're not talking about FDIC-backed, you know, um, government-insured, you know, banking systems that have whatever level of, of guarantees that your money is there for you. Um, you know, we're talking about private companies who may or may not be appropriately insured or may or may not be appropriately managing that money in the back or 
any number of things. So um, still, still really early days in a lot of this um, technology. All right. And any other um, things on the near horizon that can be um, very influential to blockchain yeah. and to all this stuff? Um, I think so. Currently, one of the big challenges of blockchain related stuff, at least in the financial tech industry, is scalability. Um, you know, Ethereum's in the tens to 20 transactions per second, I believe, whereas, um, you know, MasterCard or Visa or PayPal or any number of these are, you know, many orders of magnitude more um, mm. per second necessary to like handle those networks. So right. even if they wanted to, Visa or MasterCard could not start using the public Ethereum blockchain because it couldn't handle their volume. Uh, Ethereum plans to switch over to what's referred to as proof of stake um, sometime in the near-ish future. Um, and that system is a stepping stone towards um, what is effectively the holy grail, the, the scalable blockchain. So it's going to be something worth watching over the next year or so to see you know how that transition goes and how it you know what the end result is because all of this is cutting edge and theoretical and so while we can make right. predictions about how well things will work um it's really going to be a only time will tell type thing i think um, that's going to be one of the biggest advancements in this area um is a working um proof of stake model yeah right now bitcoin is proof of work with miners what is ethereum or what are some of the other cryptocurrencies um so just about everything out there is proof of work it's just a variation on what that work is um uh, bitcoin is um doing a i think a sha-256 over and over again to do the work and ethereum's Proof of work is designed to be resistant to specialized hardware. Um, not my specialty, so I can't really talk too much about that uh, department of things. It's not almost all of the blockchains out there um, exist proof of work model, which is really uh, unfortunate and unsustainable. Um, it's it's the best that we have, and so I don't want to crap all over it and say that it's terrible. Um, but I feel like we're coming up on the end game of what can be done under proof of work. Um, and I really am hopeful and uh, that proof of stake systems show up soon and show that they can handle this sort of thing and allow us to transition off of of what is a very wasteful system uh, proof of work well proof of work takes a tremendous amount of computing power and energy and i yep. guess My because it can't happen fast enough quote unquote um it prevents these systems from scaling to handle enough transactions right um it's not exactly the bottleneck the 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 one of the okay so one interesting metric that I learned of at one point was that if you buy a cup of coffee with Bitcoin, um, my understanding is that the amount of electricity that went into essentially that transaction and securing the network for it is roughly equal to the entire consumption of a standard American household for a whole day. So there's a level of cost that's being that's not being accounted for by these networks. Mm. Um, that you know, carbon cost and electricity cost is huge, and it's sort of being offloaded elsewhere. So we're not actually seeing those costs within the network itself because there's sort of well, um, we do a poor job capturing those kind of costs in general. Um, in terms of scaling, proof of stake let's us step towards scaling because the actual plans for um, scaling on Ethereum uh, have to do with sharding the blockchain. And the idea there is that you actually 
split the blockchain up into many smaller blockchains and you allow all of them to operate in parallel. And so what you get is this mm. sort of horizontal scaling system where all of those blockchains are able to interact with each other and they're able to talk with each other and they're able to, to operate kind of as one big single entity, but each of them individually steps forward on its own um, and you get what is effectively parallel parallelization there. And so right. while each of them individually might only handle a hundred or a thousand transactions per second or something like that, as a whole, the network handles, you know, millions or billions per second or something like that because there are that many different shards. And what is uh, proof of stake and why would, you know, how is it different from proof of work? Sure. Um, so proof of work involves um, a hardware device, whether or not that's like your CPU and your computer or a GPU or like specialized hardware that does some computationally difficult task. And, and the idea is that um, it, it's essentially solving a computationally difficult puzzle. And every time one of those puzzles gets solved, that you get to mine a new block. So the network gets to take a step forward is the idea there. Right. Uh, proof of stake effectively virtualizes this concept. Like in the proof of work model, we take our money and we invest it in mining hardware. So maybe that's CPUs, maybe that's GPUs, or maybe that's special hardware. So we put our money into this hardware and then we run that hardware to earn money back from the network. In proof of stake, you can think of it as sort of um, simulating this. So instead of buying hardware, what you do is you just take your money and you lock it up and you say, I'm going to lock up this money in exchange. You're going to pay me a little bit. And in exchange for that payment, I am going to generate blocks uh, for the network. The, and and if I and if I misbehave, then you may punish me because you have all of my money sitting there in a security deposit. So the idea is that oh, okay. in, in proof of stake, your money is the mining hardware, and the more of it you have, the more you can earn from um, uh, this sort of digital uh, or virtualized mining operation. So you're earning interest, I guess, in the form of more uh, more of the coin. You could you can what, what what is effectively happening is that you are putting some money up for investment, and that investment right. pays some return, which is sort of a function of whatever the network is configured for. Um, so you know. Ideally, it's a return that people are interested in so that they can actually, so people will actually put their money up here. Um, mm. And in order to earn that investment, you have to do your job. And your job is securing the network by producing blocks and, and playing what is effectively just this game that everybody's playing that keeps stepping the blockchain forward. Okay. Does a proof of stakeholder ever get their original deposit back? At which point yeah. they would cease being uh, able to, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, coins. You, I, all of the rules are still being developed. So none of this is, you know, final or anything like that. But the general idea is that you put all your money down and it gets kind of locked away and earns interest if you do your job right. And then at any point you can say, I'm out but you don't get to step out right away. There's sort of this time delay where you say, I'm out. And then you've got to keep doing your job for, you know, like another, it's kind of like your two weeks notice or whatever you want to call that. Right. So whatever that time period is that it's configured for, um, you still have to keep doing that job through that. But then after that, you can take your money back out. Um, I think it actually time locks it for a bit longer of a period of time. Um, but I'm not exactly sure. There's a bunch of, uh, papers and things that have been produced by Vitalik and the other research uh, people on that research team that, that detail a lot of these pieces if you really want to get into the nitty-gritty of it. Gotcha. Okay. Well, very good. I mean, it's been a great, great interview. We covered all kinds of subjects and uh, it's been very informative.
So I, I really appreciate you taking the time. No problem. Glad that I could do it. You've been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, both to review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.